Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks, an audio travel guide aimed to inspire you and your family to visit America's national parks and help you get the most out of your park experience. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode number 19.3. This is the third episode in our series on Yosemite National Park. Brian and I speak with musician and historian Tom Bopp about the infamous 1903 camping trip with President Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir at Yosemite National Park. This episode is a special treat with Tom singing live during our conversation. If this is your first time tuning in, go back and listen to our Yosemite trip report in episode 19.1. And episode 19.2 is a conversation with park naturalist Eric Westerlund about art, music, yodeling, nature, and often overlooked flora and fauna in the park. Upcoming topics in our Yosemite series include Ansel Adams, Buffalo Soldiers, Mountaineering, Geology, and more. We also want to hear about your adventures. Do you have a story to tell about your family's experience at a national park, a favorite recommendation to share, or how this podcast helped enrich your trip? Email us at hello at everybody'snps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybody'snps.com. Before I get to today's topic, I want to take a moment to talk about listener support. If you are already a patron of the podcast, thank you so much, and feel free to skip ahead one minute to today's conversation. If you are not yet a patron and you want to hear my thoughts on this topic, here they are. This podcast is a labor of love. We were looking for a podcast that would help us in planning our family trips to national parks. We could not find one, and so we decided to create the podcast we were looking for. I ask you this question, has this podcast brought you value? If so, would you consider becoming a patron by offering financial support? Patreon is a platform that allows for recurring monthly support for as low as a dollar per month. You may find a link on our website, everybody'snationalparks.com to support the show. Thank you to all of our patrons. Now let's get to the conversation. Brian and I are here with a very special guest today, musician and historian Tom Bopp, who has entertained and educated Yosemite's guests at the Wawona Hotel and the Awani since 1983. Brian and I and our two girls were very fortunate to get to see Tom perform at the Wawona Hotel two nights while we were there back in May, and it was a highlight of our trip. We thoroughly enjoyed it. Tom performs an eclectic range of music, as well as programs on Wawona history, Theodore Roosevelt, and John Muir's 1903 camping trip to Yosemite, Yosemite's music and culture, and a film documentary called Vintage Songs of Yosemite. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Brian. Great to, great to be with you. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm doing really well. I've got my morning coffee, and uh, I'm squared away. Before we jump in... I just want to say that this is a very special episode. We're so happy to have Tom, and we will be talking about Yosemite history, especially focusing on that very important camping trip of 1903. But Tom is going to also be playing some music for us today, so um, we're really excited for this. Well, thanks. I, I'm 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 here in my my little parlor with the uh, the piano and uh, ready to play for you. Fantastic. And so, as I mentioned, a highlight of our trip to Yosemite was seeing you perform, Tom. How did you become an expert on Yosemite and singing at the Bowona Hotel in the Iwani? Well, I don't think you can work at a place like the Iwani Hotel and the Wawona Hotel without getting interested in the history of the place. I notice that with other employees working there, sooner or later it dawns on you that uh, you're part of a long stream of people that worked at the place. And so, you know, I when I first worked at the Wawona Hotel in 1983, about the first thing I did was get Shirley Sargent's book on the history of the Wawona Hotel. And I guess I'm just a sucker for history. I, I'm an armchair historian, and uh, I, I started reading everything I could about the history of the place. And 
collecting information. And then I would run into old timers who had worked there or who had lived in the area way back over the previous century. And in particular, I got got to know Wawona Washburn Hartwig, who was born in the hotel in 1914. And all of that just stimulated my interest, and I wanted to dig deeper and find out more. You know, one thing, Tom, we wanted to first talk to you about is kind of your illustration through storytelling and song of that famous camping trip kind of the uber camping trip uh, between uh, John Muir and President Theodore Roosevelt at Glacier Point and at Mariposa Grove. You know, and just my preamble for this, and Daniel and I were talking about this off mic, you know, this is so cinematic and you do such a great job of putting a soundtrack to the cinema because if this were the 21st century, you know, John Muir would have hired a lobbying firm and traveled to DC and maybe gotten an appointment somewhere in the White House. Uh, but here... You had a president who literally a president on Mount Rushmore meet with if where there was a Mount Rushmore for conservationists, John Muir, he would be on there, John Muir. And they don't meet in an office or in Washington or in San Francisco. They meet in Yosemite and they go camping together. And of course, the discussions that came out of that camping trip, really, of course, the parks had already uh, begun, but it really was the new birth uh, for the national parks. And, you know, I'd love to just get your your take on it, your storytelling on it, and, and just kind of how that trip came together and kind of what they were talking about and maybe some of the songs that were going on and some of the sounds that were happening if we were being able to eavesdrop on that camping trip. Oh, if we could only eavesdrop on that camping trip. I love what you said about the media. Uh, Roosevelt knew how to work the media. That's for sure. Everybody has, uh, historians have documented that. But it's really interesting that at this juncture, this incredibly important juncture in history, when Roosevelt and Muir went camping, they affected a media blackout and they just kept the press away and they kept everybody else away from their camping trip. So one of the agonizing and challenging and intriguing aspects of the trip for historians is to try and figure out what they did talk about. We have little bits of information about their campfire conversations but they kept uh, everybody far away from those campfires. And so we have to kind of piece things together. It's very interesting. So do you want to talk a little bit about where did they camp? Why were those sites selected? And then kind of how, that, how the trip developed and, and what was discussed along the way? Well, Roosevelt and his, uh, his people were interfacing with Benjamin Ide Wheeler, the president of the uh, University of California, and with the Washburns who ran the Wawona Hotel and owned a lot of the other hotels in Yosemite National Park or ran them. And they even owned and had built a lot of the roads used in Yosemite over the previous years going back to 1874. And so there was a lot of planning. And I think all through that, Roosevelt pretty much insisted on two things that John Muir be his guide while he was in Yosemite and that he go camping, that they go camping together and, and not go to staying in hotels. And Roosevelt had had a snootful public appearances all along his railroad route from Washington to California. And he, the newspapers were noticing he was looking a little bit bedraggled and he was ready for some rest. Roosevelt was very well read. And before the trip, he had read a lot of John Muir's writings, probably in the Century Magazine and in books that had been published by John Muir. Roosevelt, you know, when he went to Harvard, he said he wanted to become a, a naturalist like Audubon. That was his uh, first focus when he went to school. He switched his major to political science later on. Uh, but he always kept this, in, this interest in the environment and conservationism. So by the time he met Muir, he knew that Muir would have uh, a lot of interesting things to say. And I think Roosevelt had a lot of questions for Muir. 
He did write, or uh, one of uh, Roosevelt's people wrote, that Roosevelt wanted to interface not with politicians in Yosemite, but people who were not connected with the government service, as the letter wrote. And, and I think Roosevelt didn't want a political perspective, but he wanted an insider's perspective on what really was going on in Yosemite National Park. Muir, of course, had uh, an ulterior motive on the trip. At that time, uh, you have to remember, in 1864, way back, uh, Lincoln had signed the Yosemite and Mariposa Big Tree Grant, which set aside the Grove and Yosemite Valley for protection. But all of the surrounding area, the watershed, had not been protected. So when Muir came along and others, they looked around and, as Muir put it, okay, you've protected the trunk of the tree, but you've ignored the leaves and the branches, the watershed. So in 1890, they created Yosemite National Park run by the federal government. But that original grant signed by Lincoln protecting the grove and the valley the Grove and the Valley were put under the jurisdiction of the state of California. And so the way California ran things, uh, the governor would appoint eight officials, probably cronies, to run Yosemite National Park. They were called the Yosemite Commission, and the individuals were called the Yosemite Commissioners. And so by the time Roosevelt comes along, Muir has been railing against the Yosemite Commissioners for their mishandling of Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Grove. And having those two entities surrounded by a federal national park, Yosemite National Park, being run at that time by the U.S. Army. They hadn't invented rangers yet. Well, Muir wanted to get rid of the commissioners. He wanted to get them fired. He wanted to reseed the valley and the grove from state control to federal control and make it all one big national park. That was on his agenda big time. So that was John Muir's goal was to make it all one park under Yosemite National Park under the federal jurisdiction. And from what I'm understanding, Roosevelt's goal was just to get that naturalist insider point of view as opposed to a government point of view. Yes, but... I think Roosevelt must have been quite aware of Muir's opposition to the Yosemite commissioners. And so Muir, being a naturalist, being uh, sort of on the same wavelength as Theodore Roosevelt as as regards to the environment, and also Muir being able to show Roosevelt precisely what he meant in real time in 3D, right out there in the woods, what was going on with the commissioners versus the federal administration of Yosemite. I think Roosevelt felt probably that he could get a really good perspective on what was happening rather than listening to politicians on one side or the other. Muir was a private citizen. He was very perceptive and very eloquent. And I think Roosevelt wanted to take advantage of that. I mean, it's a classic, uh, it's a classic politician avenue to hear from all interested parties, not to turn this into a political science lecture, but, you know, to hear from every interest group and every interested party. It just so happens on this one, it was a little bit more spectacular because it's John Muir, it's at Yosemite, and they're going camping in Mariposa Grove. So, And I would love to telescope down a little bit uh, more into what was going on in those horseback rides into Yosemite, into the into the valley or up to Glacier Point or Mariposa Grove. Mir was a, a good Scotsman, born in Scotland, and I th- I think uh, from what we've learned from you is that one of his favorites was the great Scotsman Robert Burns. So you want to talk a little bit about uh, maybe some of the songs that were being sung uh, either by Mir or by T.R. as they were uh, musing along on the on the trail. I love that you asked that because, you know, people don't think about this, but singing was something that people just did naturally 100, 150 years ago. When you go places, oh, cowboys in the West, they didn't have 
iPhones and listen to MP3s as they were on long trips. So they'd sing to themselves. And so would everybody else. Music was participatory. So you have these two guys, my goodness, Theodore Roosevelt, getting to do everything that a president needs to do, finding out, fact-finding from different sides of an issue, and then having just a bully time out there in the wilderness, which Roosevelt loved to do. I remember a English politician being quoted describing Theodore Roosevelt. He said, you must always remember that the president is about six <laughs> six years old. And, and so anyway, they're out there on horseback rambling through Yosemite. They've got a couple of guides, government rangers, Charlie Leidig and Archie Leonard. And uh, oh, and a packer guide, uh, somebody to take care of the uh, uh, all of the food and the blankets and that sort of thing. So just the five of them together. And they had a pretty long ride, a day-long ride, particularly on the uh, 16th of May when they left the Mariposa Grove to go to the back of Sentinel Dome where they camped the next night. And that's a long trip up through Empire Meadows, which was full of snow, five feet of snow, according to one of the rangers. I can't imagine them just talking the whole time. There must have been some singing. And so I've thought about that. John Muir loved Robert Burns. This is well documented. And I love having that aspect of Muir in my mind, of him not just going through the wilderness, observing things and taking notes and enjoying the flowers, but singing. There's one lovely instance in uh, the book, The Mountains of California, where John Muir is writing about the Douglas squirrel. And he describes the Douglas squirrel charmingly and very accurately. And then he said he tried singing to the squirrel to see how it would react. I love that. You know, he's a scientist and a poet at the same time. And he wants to, I don't know, mess with a squirrel's head a little bit. He sings a Robert Burns song called Bonnie Dune, and I'll just sing a little bit of it. Uh, so just imagine you're, you're a fly on the, on the side of the tree, and you're watching Muir sitting out there in the upper waters of the San Joaquin River, and, and he's singing all by himself out there in the wilderness to this squirrel. And he sings this song. He named the song. And braids a bonny doom. How can you bloom so fresh and fair? How can you chant, ye little birds? And I say, weary folk, thou'll break my heart, you warbling bird that wantons through the flowering thorn. Thou minds me, oh, departed joys, departed never to return. Now, I can't imagine Muir not singing that somewhere along the trip. And Roosevelt, this big, outdoor, strong, manly man, listening to that, and maybe he said, Ah, Muir... Play something manly. Sing something manly. And uh, so I thought about that. Yeah. Bonnie Dune might have been a tad too delicate for Roosevelt. Now, we know that Roosevelt loved this song called Danny Deaver. They're hanging Danny Deaver in the morning. And there is a operatic singer that Roosevelt would always have come give concerts at the White House. And that fellow sang Danny Deaver and Roosevelt was just reduced to shouting, bully, that was bully. So uh, it's kind of brutal, I'll warn you. It, it was 
Based on a poem written by Rudyard Kipling and set to music by Walter Damrosch, I think around 1903, right about this time, as a matter of fact. And I like to think that Roosevelt had heard the song and maybe could sing snatches of it to Muir to let Muir know what real music sounds like. So here's, here's just a little bit of it. What are the bugles blowing for? Said files on parade. To turn you out, to turn you out, the color sergeant said. What makes you look so white, so white? Said files on parade. I'm dreading what I've got to watch, the color sergeant said. For they're hanging Danny Deaver, they are marching of him round. They've halted Danny Deaver by his coffin on the ground, and he'll swing an out for a minute for a sneaking shooting hound. And they're hanging Danny Deaver in the morning. And it gets worse from there. <laughs> you know, it actually, I guess it makes sense that, uh, uh, and I didn't know that was a Kipling poem, but, uh, you know, I guess Kipling, certainly uh, an imperialist, and Roosevelt at least being Im- imperialism curious uh, at the time, I-, I-, I can see them having some sort of a... Uh, some sort of kinship, so that, that that would be a very striking song to sing on the trail. Uh, like you, I can see Roosevelt liking that one. It checks all the boxes that he that he likes, right? Very evocative. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. a little sentimental, but yeah, but not overly saccharine sentimental. <laughs> right, uh, yeah. I think if you ask Mark Twain too, uh, Roosevelt was more than just playing at imperialism. So Muir taking a cue from that. It may have occurred to John Muir that they had a song in common. And I think a lot of people knew this other song by Robert Burns, which is truly manly song. And Muir would have sung it. And if Roosevelt knew it, I did just love to concoct the picture of Roosevelt and Muir riding side by side in Yosemite, singing this song by Robert Burns. Scots, why we Wallace bled. Scots, whom Bruce has often led. Welcome to your gory bed or on to victory. Now's the day and now's the hour. See the front of battle lower. See approach proud Edward's power. Chains and slavery. Now, <laughs> Scots Wahey, that means Scots who have with Wallace bled. And anybody who's seen that jolly romp movie, Braveheart, will know that at the very end of the movie, when Robert Bruce is about to receive recognition from the crown, Bruce instead turns to his troops, and in the movie he says, you bled with Wallace, now bleed with me. And they charge into bloody battle, and then they do the credit roll for the movie. So that's kind of where the song is set. And I just love the idea. It could have happened, it might not have happened. We just don't know of Muir and Roosevelt singing that song. Well, I I just love all those songs and thinking about them riding their horses. But they also spent a lot of time talking around the campfire and possibly singing around the campfire, too. Where were the different sites where they camped each night? And would you mind playing a song for us, a campfire song that they may have been singing those nights? Sure. And let me add that this isn't just frivolous entertainment. This is uh, bonding that's going on when you when you dine with somebody, when you have a state dinner, when you sing with somebody, when you connect on that level. Even though it's popular culture and it's light, it is an element in these two men bonding together. It wasn't just talk. It was connecting on a deeper level. These two men were hitting it off big time. So they came in on the train 
from Oakland across California down pretty much what's Highway 99 and then up to the little foothill town of Raymond, which is kind of between Oakhurst and Mariposa in California. And then they got off the train on May 15th. That was a Friday. And they took horse-drawn stages up to the Mariposa Grove of Big Trees. They went straight up there. They were accompanied by the Buffalo Soldiers, as they're called now, the African-American Cavalry, uh, the Ninth Cavalry out of the Presidio in San Francisco. Those guys, probably 30 cavalrymen, accompanied Roosevelt at his request to the Mariposa Grove. So they arrived there, oh, sometime in the afternoon of Friday the 15th. And after Roosevelt has his picture taken with the presidential party and with Muir, quite a few pictures were taken, and he tours around the Grove in his stage, and evening is coming on. And according to the ranger, Charlie Leidig, Roosevelt dismissed the troops and dismissed everybody else and sent them down to the Wawona Hotel. And and he said, goodbye, God bless you. Off you go. And everybody was just summarily dismissed so that Roosevelt and Muir and his two rangers and that Packer guide named Alder could be alone. And he camped that night, according to Leidig, underneath the grizzly giant, that massive ancient, beautiful, giant sequoia that is, if if you're the least bit inclined toward tree worship, that's the place to go, is to do your obeisance before the grizzly giant. It's just a wonderful tree. And I love the idea of Roosevelt Muir camping under that tree. It is said that night that Roosevelt quizzed Muir on bird identification. Roosevelt reportedly asked Muir, how do you tell the Hammond from the right flycatcher? Roosevelt was disappointed with Muir's answer because Muir didn't apparently know much about birds at all. And Roosevelt was just appalled at this. Roosevelt did say that Muir knew a lot about the rocks and the trees and the geology and that sort of thing and the plants but uh, Roosevelt remained rather befuddled that Muir didn't know anything about the birds because Roosevelt was an avid birder. He just loved bird songs, and he waxed poetic about the hermit thrushes that sang that evening and the next morning. Now, the next morning, they got up early and headed on horseback, as I mentioned across uh, Yosemite, through Wawona, and on up to Sentinel Dome. Now, at that time, Roosevelt was aware that the Yosemite commissioners had arranged for Muir and Roosevelt to have dinner at the Wawona Hotel that Friday night. And Roosevelt just said, no, I'm, I'm camping. That's what I plan to do, and that's what I'm going to do. So Roosevelt, probably sensing that there was a dinner party that went on at the Wawona Hotel the previous night without him, uh, thought, well, he directed Charlie Leidig, the ranger. He said, I want you to outskirt and avoid the Wawona Hotel when we ride through there so he wouldn't run into the people that he had snubbed for the dinner. So instead of crossing the famous Wawona-covered bridge down there that everybody went across, Leidig directed them about a mile upstream to cross the river, the South Fork of the Merced, without being caught by all of those people. And uh, they evidently succeeded. Pretty funny. So on they go up, and they camp somewhere near Glacier Point, and nobody knows exactly where they camped. Leidig, in a uh, later interview, 25 years or more later, uh, remembered that they had camped somewhere up above Glacier Point, uh, 
where there had been a campground after the time that Muir and Roosevelt were there. But if you triangulate, there was a San Francisco Chronicle article that said that they camped in the heights behind Sentinel Dome. Well, behind Sentinel Dome would be a good safe distance away from Glacier Point and away from the press and the commissioners who may have been staying at the Mountain House, a little resort that was there at Glacier Point. And so if you go behind Sentinel Dome, there is a little stream there that uh, would have been flowing pretty well in May when they were there that turns into Sentinel Falls falling about 3,000 feet down to the valley floor of Yosemite Valley. And they would have needed water for cleaning up their mess, you know, for dinner and water for the horses. They had several horses along on the trip. So I like to think that they camped at the brink of Sentinel Falls, but I don't know this for sure. Roosevelt said they camped at the brink of the cliff, but he might have just been being dramatic. It's hard to say. So somewhere around there on the evening of May 16th, Saturday evening, they camped there. And it was that night that Charlie Leidig observed. He, he made steaks and coffee for Roosevelt and John Muir to entertain the president set fire to a standing dead tree. He somehow knew how to set this whole thing on fire and make a gigantic Roman candle. And Roosevelt was just exuberant. He was jumping up and down and shouting, Hurrah, that's a candle it took 300 years to make. Hurrah for Yosemite. Bully, bully. (laughs) So Muir knew how to entertain this guy. He's at heart six years old, right? And Leidig observed that evening also that there was some trouble between the two men because both of them wanted to do all the talking. (laughs) Not hard to imagine. Leidig said that they talked quite a lot about the preservation of forests in general and Yosemite in particular and about the setting aside of other forest areas to preserve them. I think uh, also he mentioned they talked about the Calaveras grove of big trees and how that ought to be preserved. But the thing that stood out, we get these general little statements from Charlie Leidig. He's the only eyewitness to their camping trip who said anything about it, as far as we know. And so we're hanging on Leidig's words to know what they talked about. So Leidig said... One of the things that stood out to Leidig was, he said, Muir seemed to annoy the president by picking twigs for his buttonhole. (laughs) You have to play this out in your mind, all right? Here are these two giants of conservationism together camping. And Muir is saying to Roosevelt, Mr. Roosevelt, twigs to decorate your buttonhole. They'll look good. And Roosevelt said, no, no. That annoys me, Muir. Don't, I don't want twigs. Leave me alone. <laughs> and so what would they have sung? There was a, a song that came out of the Civil War, which very naturally became a favorite campfire song. And it is this. And, oh, if they didn't sing this, uh, I think it's beyond speculation that they would have sung this around the campfire. You tell me what you think. We're tenting tonight on the old campground. Give us a song to cheer. Our weary hearts, a song of home and friends we love so dear. Many are the hearts that are weary tonight, wishing for the war to cease. Many are the hearts looking for the right to see the dawn of peace. Tenting tonight, tenting tonight, tenting on the old campground. 
Now I think they must have sung that. And I just love the idea that some of the Yosemite commissioners are off in the distance somewhere out of sight hearing Roosevelt and Muir having a grand time together around the campfire. And the commissioners are thinking, oh, no, Muir's going to get us all fired. (laughs) (laughs) They're trying to dream up stuff to sabotage the camping trip by arranging dinners and visits with dignitaries and things like that. And Roosevelt would have none of it. Well, it's a a great segue because... You know, this wasn't just a camping trip. How did this camping trip pave the way for the national parks and conservation in general in America? Well, yeah, it was far more than a camping trip, though it was that. And Roosevelt, I think, must have just been in seventh heaven, combining one of his favorite things to do, camping out and roughing it, and actually uh, furthering federal policy. So, yeah, that's going on. Well, looking at the aftermath, you can say that everything that Roosevelt did after the camping trip was influenced or a result of his camping trip with John Muir, but it's not necessarily the case. And I've often asked myself, would Roosevelt have accomplished all that he did for conservation if he had never met John Muir? And it's possible. It's possible because, as mentioned, Roosevelt had wanted to be a naturalist like Audubon, and he was always interested in the natural sciences and conservation. In fact, before he had ever met Muir, well, two months before he met Muir, uh, he started the very first ever federal wildlife refuge, the first one ever, and he made 50 more of these by the end of his presidency. But Maybe one of the things we can credit to the camping trip. Remember, people think, well, Muir and Roosevelt, Roosevelt started the national park system. No, we had national parks going back to Yellowstone. And, and of course, Yosemite was already a national park. So uh, Roosevelt was involved with refining the process, I think, uh, refining the national park system. And certainly, because of their camping trip together, Roosevelt saw it through to fire all the Yosemite commissioners, the poor guys, and to reseed the valley and the grove from state control back to federal control. So that was accomplished, we know, by that camping trip. And we know, too, that by the end of Roosevelt's presidency, he had provided federal protection. He, and working with Gifford Pinchot, who turned out to be Muir's enemy in in a lot of respects, but those men working together provided federal protection for, I've read, 230 million acres of land. If you add that up, that's California, Oregon, and Washington State combined with change. It's it just incredible. Uh, and, but because of this media blackout of Roosevelt and Muir pushing the press and everybody else away, and all we have is, a, I will say, technically problematic report from Charlie Leidig 25 years plus later, reminiscing about what the two guys talked about. That's all we have. And he doesn't say, he doesn't say that they talked about, say, the dam at Hetch Hetchy, whether Hetch Hetchy should be uh, turned into a reservoir or not. We can only speculate on that and, and, and on any other particulars. But uh, for sure, the recession issue, as it was called, was on the agenda and was accomplished by that trip. So John Muir got his wish to get those areas protected. But like you mentioned, he was not successful with his lobbying for Hetch Hetchy. Can you play the song Hetch Hetchy, which uh, Don Neely was kind enough to uh, give us permission to perform on, on our podcast today? 
Dear Don, he put together a group called the Royal Society Jazz Orchestra, and they recreate music from bygone days. And one of the things that Don likes to do is write songs in the style of of old-fashioned music. And he's very studied in this. So he knew that I was collecting songs that had to do with Yosemite. And uh, I've found songs written about Yosemite going back to the 1870s. So we were talking about this one day and he said, well, did anybody write a song about Hetch Hetchy? Do you have anything about Hetch Hetchy? And I said, oh, Don, nobody ever wrote a song about Hetch Hetchy. It's too obscure. And two weeks later, I think, in the mail, I get this song from him called Hetch Hetchy, I Love You. And I'll just play you a little bit of it. Here, here we go. Many sing the praises of Yosemite From dome to waterfall But there is another valley you must see You'll find it has it all And it puts me in a state of ecstasy When I hear my true love call There's a place I'm going to, Hatch Hatchy Where meadows kiss the skies of blue, Hatch Hatchy On high I see an eagle fly And hear the mournful coyote cry I'll raise a son and daughter in Hatch Hatchy They'll praise the sun and water in Hatch Hatchy a million years you'll see us through Hatch Hatchy, I love you That was great. Bravo. <laughs> I love that. And that was just bringing me back to being in uh, at the Wawona Hotel listening to you sing that and everyone in the room is <laughs> shouting out after you, Hatch Hatchy. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, they're filling in with Hatch Hatchy. It's it's kind of fun to to do a song like that and to talk about it and and have it be a a way of introducing the subject. A lot of guests come to Yosemite visitors and they never heard of the place. Who would imagine that there is a second U-shaped glacial valley in Yosemite National Park and that if Yosemite Valley weren't there, everybody would be flocking to go to Hetch Hetchy to see the beautiful Hetch Hetchy Valley in California. And now people come here and they, they never heard of it. So, you know, music becomes interwoven uh, as a way of interpreting our visit to the park. And I think if it were left only to scientists, which is very essential, and people writing prose about Yosemite, we'd leave a, a, a very paltry record of our interaction with the park. But when you bring in the poetry and the paintings and the photography and the music that is associated with people's impressions of Yosemite, then you get a much fuller picture of what, what the park is really all about. Absolutely. This is a whole series. So this interview with you, Tom, is just one part, and we will be addressing some of those others that you mentioned, like photography. It helps spread spread the word, helps people learn about this beautiful place, and brings them to this place through music, through photography, through paintings, through books, poetry, all of those things. Well, I appreciate you're including me in bringing this to the public. And I have to say, you can deem all of this as being important and solemn, and we need to get the word out and all that sort of thing. But in another sense, it's just really darned entertaining. 
And, you know, and, and if you're pursuing being entertained in a deep, meaningful way, but nonetheless, just doing something that you're really going to get a big cake out of. It's so much better if you come to a place like Yosemite, to any national park, with all of this background, the historical background, the cultural background, entered into your head. And then you've got some really good software, a really good app already installed in your brain that you can go into the park and just really experience it in a meaningful, wonderful way. You nailed it. That's exactly our goal. That's why we're doing this. So Tom, can you share one of your favorite Yosemite stories, whether it's your own personal experience? You obviously are very passionate about Yosemite and its history and music, but you made a choice to dedicate your life to this. What makes Yosemite so special to you? Is there a particular experience or a particular story, whether it's for you or in Yosemite's history, that you can share with us? There are so many stories. There are as many stories as there are individuals who come here. But there is one very brief one that stands out not only to me, but to the many, many people who have heard this story. I first heard it from a ranger who I interviewed 25 years ago. He was 91 at the time, uh, Carl Sharsmith, Dr. Carl Sharsmith, who had been coming to Yosemite for, I believe, 63 years. I think he first came to Yosemite in 1931, and he fell in love with the place. And he told the story. It is usually attributed to Carl, but he told me, oh, no, I didn't, I didn't uh, make that story up, or I, didn't, uh, it, it, I heard it from somebody else. I still like to attribute it to Carl Sharsmith. And the story is this. He said he was out there doing his ranger duties, and a sports car pulled up, and this fellow with the top off of the car, and he's got his sunglasses on and his cap, and he said, Ranger, yes, what would you recommend I do if I only have a day to see the park? What do you recommend? And the ranger said, well, you see that rock over there down by the river? Yeah, 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 I see that. Okay, it's, it's a good one to sit on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if I were you and I only had one day to see the park, I would go over and sit down on that rock and cry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so there's, there's a story. You know what? Well, the main reason I was interviewing Carl 25 years ago is I was collecting old Yosemite songs, and somebody told me that Carl knew a lot of the old campfire songs that they used to sing in the old days. And he didn't remember all of it, but he sang a bit of this old campfire song that a buddy of his had written back in 1932, a fellow named Karsten Ahrens. And I could sing it for you. We would love it. Okay. Uh, the words are written to the Dairy tune, otherwise called the London Dairy Air. Some people know it as Danny Boy. And I like these words better than the Danny Boy lyrics, so you be the judge. Yosemite, oh land of cliffs and waterfalls, of rock-bound purple lakes that calmly lie. Yosemite, though distant, we shall hear the call. Of wooded mountains reaching to the sky Like Ceres old, you weave a spell that captures us With bird and flower and skies of sparkling blue Yosemite, though fate may lead us far away 
We'll count the moments lost we spend away from you. That was lovely. Isn't that good? That was absolutely beautiful. That's my favorite Yosemite song. Now, you know, a lot of them have been written and published as sheet music going back to the 1870s. And people are still writing campfire songs. It's still going on. And I just love it. People should bring their popular culture to places like Yosemite. You know, singing and dancing around campfires goes back in Yosemite Valley, I would guess as long as people have been in Yosemite, 8,000 years. I think it's our oldest ongoing cultural tradition. Sure, it's primal. Bring your guitar to Yosemite. Bring it, bring it camping in general. It's just as natural for people to bring their culture with them as it is for birds to bring their singing with them. And, and all of that has a place in the parks. Well, that is a great place to uh, close. I, I just love that. And I love birds. Before we close out, where can people see you perform? Because if people are making a family trip to Yosemite, they should not miss the opportunity to see you. Well, the Wawona Hotel season goes generally from sometime just before spring break or Easter until the end of the year. And I'm there playing away five nights a week, Tuesday through Saturday. I'm off Sunday and Monday. I tell people no reason to come to the park on Sunday and Monday. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, And I've been doing that for 36 years, since 1983. I was 25 years old when I got the job. And then in the wintertime, from January through March, when the Wawona Hotel is generally usually closed for the winter. I'll play at the Awani Hotel at least one or two nights a week and maybe more than that. So just check my schedule online. Uh, I keep a website called yosemitemusic.com and I put my schedule on there. If, if there's anything like a Luddite historic website, <laughs> I, there are a lot of pages I haven't updated, I think, since 1996 when I put the site online. But at least you'll find my schedule there and find out where I'm, I'm playing. Right. I'll put a link to that in our show notes on our website. And when we were there, you showed a, a presentation, a slideshow of recreation in the early days. Yeah. Of, uh, of the park, which we thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, I do those on request. So roll by the piano before, say, 8 o'clock in the evening. I'm playing from 5.30 to 9.30 on Tuesday through Saturday. So if you roll by the piano and say, hey, what about doing one of those picture shows you do? I do one where I sing old Yosemite songs and show pictures and movie footage from the park archives. I've got one that I present on Roosevelt and Muir's camping trip and another one on the history of the hotel. So, yeah, feel free to to roll by the piano and uh, say, hey, Tom, why don't you do one of those? I'll fold it in to my gig maybe about 8.30, And otherwise, you're just playing whatever music you feel like or sometimes taking requests from the crowd? I do both. And I try to keep it vintage. I try to do music that's evocative of earlier eras in Yosemite and at the Wawona. And sometimes if people really want it, I'll do music that is consistent with what might have been played at the Wawona Hotel by Estella Washburn, who, whose granddaughter I knew, Wawona Washburn Hartwig. Uh, Estella used to play piano because she was married to the manager back in 1885. So sometimes we'll spend a night in the parlor just recreating the, the sound and the feel of those times. And other times I'll get into, oh, just the jazz and popular songs. I love the great American songbook, ragtime, cowboy songs. I go with the flow. You know, when people ask for one thing or another, I'll, I'll try to oblige them. That's great. Well, we really enjoyed thinking about what, I guess, 
our trip going in the steps of what it might have been for those earlier visitors being at the Wawona Hotel and some of the other places we visited, staying at Camp Curry and thinking about, you know, the firefall that happened long ago. <laughs> it was sure a touchstone for our trip is to, we, we certainly felt like we were walking the steps of hundreds of thousands of other people and not having too dissimilar of an experience than someone who was there in the 1930s or the 1920s. And that was, that was really special. That's important too, because on one hand, yes, we have that experience in common when you're lying in your bed at the Wawona Hotel looking at the ceiling that was put in there by plasters more than 100 years before. You're looking at the same ceiling and lying in the same, in the same state of mind, you know, in the same room as somebody 100 years ago. And you're thinking the same thing. Well, what are we going to do tomorrow? Maybe we'll go see Yosemite Falls. Maybe we'll go for a walk or a horseback ride. And, and you're having a shared experience. And beyond that, you, it gets you thinking about how it came to be that we have hotels in, say, the Iwani Hotel in Yosemite National Park. You, you don't look at it in modern terms and, and think, oh, we, we shouldn't have a big hotel in such and such a place. No, you think of it in historic terms because these things are cultural artifacts of how we experienced and felt the park over the years and how those earlier attitudes are still influencing our experience in the park today. It, and by extension, you think about, okay, what are we doing today that's going to influence people's experience of the park 100 years from now? And how will they think about what we were doing you know, 100 years in the past? Will they be saying, oh, how could they be doing such things? You know, we look back at the firefall and bear feedings and things like that, and, and people will laugh. How could they have done that? Well, the culture changes as the years go by. Right, yes. And if you listen to the old Yosemite songs, they're all about Yosemite, but they each sound exactly like the style of the music and the style of the writing of the words of their respective decades. And so if we write about Yosemite today, whatever we write, whatever we paint, whatever we photograph, perhaps, uh, however we express ourselves about Yosemite, is going to reflect our cultural viewpoint of Yosemite. And 50 years from now, it's going to look dated and old-fashioned and might be sweet. It might be educational for them. Right. To end, would you play a little bit of the song Yosemite by Harry Mabry? Oh, Harry Mabry. Yes. Um, <laughs> okay. He wrote this. Here is a guy who was an attorney in Los Angeles in 1954. And he wrote this lovely song. It sounds like it should have been sung by Roy Rogers. And my goodness, with a guy who could write a song like this, I would have wanted him to represent me uh, in court if I needed him. Uh, he would just charm the jury. Here's the song he wrote. When we reach the verdant valley and the winding mountain stream, see great cliffs and waterfalls pass in review. Find the skies by day all sunny And at night be decked with stars Then we know that we are in Yosemite Here in Yosemite Fair nature's wondrous gem Our hearts o'erflow with peace And joy and love Each day from dawn till dawn only the merry song is ever heard here in Yosemite. Your smile, your kiss, the love light in your eyes. 
eyes so gay Your fond embrace Drives every care away Here we have long to be Heaven for you and me At last we part We're in Yosemite Here we have long to be At last, sweetheart We're in Yosemite Bravo. Thank you so much. We are speaking with Tom Bopp. And Tom, thank you so much. You can find Tom's schedule at yosemitemusic.com and definitely go see him when you uh, make your trip to Yosemite. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Danielle, Brian, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. Send us your stories, tips, or comments to hello at everybody'snps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybody'snps.com. Subscribe for free to Everybody's National Parks on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, become a patron. Just click on support our show on our homepage, everybody'snationalparks.com. We also appreciate if you write a review, give us a five-star rating, and tell your friends. This helps more people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybody's national parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.